This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya and I work in public health in developing areas. Today, we're going to talk about typhoid. I, I feel like typhoid is one of those ones that it's kind of around, but it's neglected. Like, we don't really talk about it that much. Mm-hmm. It's not really on my yeah. awareness spectrum. And I definitely used to confuse it with typhus. Typhus, typhoid, not the same thing. Yeah. But present quite similarly. As do many other diseases. Well, that's a great segue, actually. It is a very good segue. So, typhoid was not discovered by our favorite doctor, FYI. Koch. Oh, I'm, I'm so sad that our journey with him is over. <laughs> it may yet continue. Let's call this a pause, yeah. not an ending. <laughs> so, typhoid is caused by a bacteria called Salmonella typhi, which causes the more serious typhoid fever. There's also another bacteria called Salmonella paratyphoid, and that causes a similar but less serious disease, which is basically just put under the same heading. This bacteria, Salmonella, obviously I read that and was like, is it related to Salmonella? And after some research, it appears that yes, it is. Basically, there's a species called Salmonella enterica, And if you remember your ninth grade biology, it goes domain, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So it's down there at the bottom Mm -hmm. of the pyramid. Um, But is that like, is that Linnaean classification? That sounds right. I cannot confirm or deny it because I do not remember ninth grade biology and had to write those down. (laughs) So within this species, Salmonella enterica, there are many, many subspecies, 2,600 of them actually. And they are divided into typhoidal and non-typhoidal bacteria. These specific ones that we are talking about that cause typhoid are really well developed to cause harm to their human hosts. But a bunch of these 2,600 bacteria are asymptomatic, cause less serious diseases, and some of them just don't even really affect humans at all. Typhoid is actually also called enteric fever because of this species of bacteria. And... Uh, in general, it's just a highly infectious disease that affects millions of lives every year. So this might sound a little repetitive if you listened to our cholera episode, but typhoid is caused by contaminated food or water or on rarer occasions contact with someone who's already sick. And in places where the disease is endemic, which means it's an ongoing disease in the population, it's generally caused by contaminated drinking water or overall poor sanitation. And again, that bacteria lives in the feces or urine of a sick person. So when there's poor general sanitation with things like sewer systems or food handling, it leads to more people getting typhoid and getting sick. And as urbanization increases in high-risk areas, so we're talking mostly developing world, these issues become more and more relevant because you've got more people in a smaller space with poor sanitation. This brings us back to my favorite mantra, boil it, peel it. Or don't eat it, which is a great way to avoid food or water transmitted diseases. So typhoid is a febrile disease, which means that you get a fever, um, as well as exhaustion, headaches, nausea, diarrhea, and sometimes constipation, which is weird that both are a symptom. Some people might get a really bad rash, and there can be other more serious complications like intestinal bleeding or sepsis, inflammation of the heart or other organs, and more unpleasantness. (laughs) 
I just did that thing where I like self-diagnosed myself with <laughs> with typhoid fever just there. Sounds like, like me. Yep, yep, yep. Well, let me tell you how you can tell if that's accurate or not, shall I? Great, please. So as with many diseases common in remote areas, there are a lot of issues around accurate diagnostics for typhoid. So you might notice that these symptoms are really similar to other diseases common to areas we've already talked about, like cholera. Or like whatever Angel is feeling in her body right now. (laughs) Um, And it's also really similar to stuff we haven't covered yet, like malaria. So there are some rapid diagnostic tests that are available to clear that up, but they have been shown to really not be very accurate at all. The most common type of testing in low resource areas is rapid diagnostic tests because they're super fast, they're super cheap, they're super easy to use. But obviously that's a problem if they're the most common, but also they're not really reliable. The most reliable, the gold standard tests for typhoid are blood or bone marrow tests. But when you are far away from labs, those labs are really overstretched and it's hard to even get the samples to the lab and then back again to the same person. It's not really sensible to think that you'll be able to get an accurate and timely test result for typhoid. In fact, apparently only 40 to 60% of typhoid cases are correctly identified, which is very low. So once you are or are not diagnosed with typhoid, you're given antibiotics that can last five to 21 days, but there is an increased multidrug resistance for typhoid in the same way that we saw with TB. So there are a lot of typhoid bacteria out there that just don't respond to first line antibiotics. And that line of antibiotics has been used for quite some time, which leads to the need for new antibiotics, which are more expensive and less readily available. So those older antibiotics are more commonly and cheaply available in places like Southeast Asia or Africa. And these new ones aren't as easily distributed and they're more expensive to get your hands on. All this to say that really the best measure against typhoid is preventative. So improved wash, water sanitation and hygiene, and the accessibility of vaccines. So there are three recommended typhoid vaccines, one of which is really quite new and is still undergoing a lot of trials to see how effective it is. None of these can be taken when you're under six months old. Two of them are injections and one of them is oral. The oral vaccine requires a lot of doses, which means it's hard to implement in really remote rural areas where it's hard to get people to come back regularly at the right times. Um, But it does offer seven years of protection if completed. The more common one is a shot, and that's only good for two years, but you can get booster shots for it. So, for example, that's what I've had is I got a typhoid shot many years ago, and then I get a little booster before I go anywhere where there's a high risk. Both of those are only between 50 and 80% effective, though. So the efficacy actually goes down after a few years, which is just a real bummer. There (laughs) There is a newer vaccine that is single dose. And it appears to be over 80% effective for more than three years. But again, they're still doing trials for that. So it's hard to say if that's 100% true. But that's really key, right? Because if you can't diagnose it very easily and you can't treat it very easily because it's becoming drug resistant, the best possible thing is to try and prevent it entirely. So that's what organizations like Gavi, which is the Alliance for Vaccines, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are trying to work towards. So that's what we're dealing with with typhoid. Lovely. So for the historical portion of the episode today, what we're going to be doing for the most part is what I call a case study. So that's one example that allows us to talk about some broader issues, but without getting lost in the broad strokes of the thing. 
So I'm going to start off with some background info and historiography. So historiography is just the word that we use to talk about the literature in history. So like the history of the history, not that that's helpful, <laughs> but it's the state of the literature. That is literally how they first explained it to us when we were um, starting to write in history. And let me tell you, it took a few years to really get the hang of it. Aren't you supposed to not use the word in the definition of the word? Well, you know, now we just call it a lit review. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to start off with some background info, and then I will be talking a lot about the case of Mary Mallon, a.k.a. Yeah. Typhoid Mary. Woo! It's a real bummer. Who's excited? I'm excited. I have a lot of thoughts on Typhoid Mary. Okay, so first of all, for the general stuff, so there's something that's called the Great Sanitary Awakening, and we've touched on this in previous episodes. We've been pretty 19th century heavy for the past few episodes, but between the cholera and the TB, this is all part of like a package of illnesses that become really problematic because of the Industrial Revolution and because of increasing urbanization. Just people being packed into uh, cities in really poor conditions with a lot of overcrowding, poor nutrition, Poor ventilation, just poor everything. We should have believed the Luddites. Yeah. We could do a whole other episode about that, about like <laughs> diseases of the factories with like a highlights reel. Oh my god, it would be so dark. It would be horrible. But yeah, okay, so some some key dates, because I did mention at the top of the episode that like we have trouble sometimes differentiating between typhus and typhoid, and they only made that pathological distinction in 1836. So that's a fairly recent one. And then it was proven that typhoid was transmissible via water in 1856 and 1873. And then Salmonella typhi was isolated in 1880. Those are roughly the dates that we're dealing with. And then there is the development of a serological test for typhoid and the discovery of asymptomatic typhoid carriers by, and you thought you weren't going to hear about him today, Robert Koch. Oh my god, I'm so <laughs> Come on, waterborne illnesses. He was always going to make an appearance. Oh, you knew, you sneaky <laughs> I know, I wow. wanted to surprise you. That's I know so he funny. makes you happy. <laughs> so busy, that guy. So the sanitary movement is something that starts to happen in the 1830s and the 1840s in Britain, and that's exported to other places like North America after that time. And the sanitary movement is the first movement to really define itself as a public health movement. And its explicit goals were the prevention of epidemic diseases and the removal of filth. So if you remember in our cholera episode, we talked about the great stink and miasma theory, and the building of the London sewers and how that project was a really big part of preventing further loss of life um, due to cholera. And it was a really big game changer in the industrialized parts of Europe. So all of these things are developing together as a result of urbanization and the Industrial Revolution. So if you want a really basic introduction to the sanitary movement, because I don't really want to get into it too, too much, and the genesis of modern public health, especially due to the boom in city populations that lead to a rise in quote-unquote dangerous populations, meaning poor people. Um, Yale has a series of online courses and lectures, and you can get a really good macro-level 
recap of the sanitary movement. I also added a book to our anti-racism and health reading list called Water, Race, and Disease by a guy named Werner Troskin. Mm-hmm. And it I have not read it yet, but it looks like a really good analysis of how like public water systems and like sewer systems in, I believe, specifically North America and the United States affected black life expectancy, especially during Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. I have another related title that I did not get the chance to consult today, but that I think would be really interesting. And it does actually, it does actually look at typhoid fever specifically. It's called Fevered Measures, Public Health and Race at the Texas-Mexico Border, 1848 to 1942. We'll put that on the reading list too. Yeah. By John McKiernan Gonzalez about public health measures and geographies of health and the various racializing effects of public health campaigns along the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. I just, yeah. Where was I? So yeah, Yale does a really good high-level recap of the sanitary movement. Um, For example, linking hygiene and sanitation reform with the expression and consolidation of state power. So like really, really macro level. But it's like 45 minutes and I think it's well worth your time if you're interested. As the link between contaminated water and illness comes to be known, whether that they're interpreting that as pollution or stink or pathogen, city and state officials become obsessed with cleanliness and sanitation, particularly in urban urban areas as a way of controlling populations, but also as a way of controlling disease. So this is a response to cholera, typhoid fever, and TB, among other illnesses. Um, And it's also a super class-sensitive concept, this concept of sanitation, because people of lower classes were considered especially prone to illness because they were more prone to dirt. (laughs) Literally, yeah. Um, And my case study will get into that. But it plays in really nicely to religious ideas of physical and moral purity as well, and we've talked about that before. And we'll talk about that again, although sadly today I have no Bible (laughs) passages for you. What? No scripture reading. (laughs) No, the age of biblical references are behind me. In this episode, I really want to talk about Typhoid Mary. Most people will have heard about Typhoid Mary and think of it mostly as an expression for someone who is a healthy carrier of disease who unwittingly or not spreads it to others. Also, some, not me, may know that there is a Spider-Man universe slash Marvel character called Typhoid Mary who sets people on fire with fevers. I did not know about that, but that was a a jolt to see on the Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, there have been some really mixed portrayals of Mary Mallon, and a lot of them, even recent ones, are extremely dehumanizing. And I found that really disturbing. All right, so hit me with it. Right, okay. So, first of all, what people often don't know is that Typhoid Mary was an actual person. Um, And what I find is that she's a really poignant example of competing narratives about disease. And her story really shows us how invested we are in these narratives and what they say about about our society and about our health. So revisiting the story of Typhoid Mary while in lockdown, while these discussions about social distancing and the public versus personal good are going on, really struck a nerve, I think. and, And it's going to give us a lot to talk about. So to give you some background info about Mary Mallon, Mary Mallon was born in Ireland in 1869, and she immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager. 
She found work as a cook and began working for wealthy New York families. And in the summer of 1906, she took a position cooking for the family of a banker who were on holiday in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And out of 11 members of this banker's household, six people contracted typhoid fever. And the banker, George Thompson, hired an investigator to track down the source of the infection. And this was quite common at the time. This investigator was a civil engineer called George Soper, who was already well known as a sanitation engineer for his epidemiological studies of typhoid epidemics. So he came to Long Island, he ruled out common causes such as contamination of water or milk or shellfish as the cause. He continued to eliminate as many possible causes as he could. He interviewed family members, he traced contacts, and he eventually began to suspect that the cook was the main cause, especially when he heard that she frequently prepared this ice cream dessert with fresh fruit for the family, which was apparently the perfect vehicle for, for typhoid fever. So when the investigator looked into Mary Mallon's employment history, so through her employment agency, he found that seven of the eight families she had worked for had contracted typhoid fever for a total of 22 cases between 1900 and 1907. She must have thought she was cursed. Yeah, or she must have just thought, like, cities are a dangerous place. <laughs> disease everywhere. The germ theory of disease wasn't super well-known. Like, it was established among medical professionals and health professionals, but if you weren't educated, you weren't necessarily on board with germ theory and the idea that these tiny invisible things were going around waiting to kill you was kind of far-fetched. I mean, when you say it like that... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have to think about, that's the, that's the trickiest thing about history, especially when you're just starting. Like, you need to consider the beliefs of the people that you're studying as, as if they were uh, 100% accurate, even if you think it's ridiculous. So, like, that becomes especially tricky the farther back you go with things like religious attitudes. Belief in the supernatural can often be a really powerful motivator for some people in the same way that maybe ideas that they haven't come across before and don't trust and come from this foreign person uh, who they don't see as an authority but as some weird random person trying to take control of their lives like you can kind of understand why they might not believe that source of information yeah and also making a big assumption about mary malone as a irish immigrant she's probably quite religious yep that would yeah. be a catholic lady and emigrating from Ireland in the 1870s, 1880s, like coming from an extremely impoverished background, coming to New York City, having really terrible career prospects um, and not much opportunity and like fairly racist attitudes towards the Irish, even if there was quite a sizable immigrant Irish community, like she, she had a really rough deal to begin with. But yes, let's move on to my next section, George Soper and Mary Mallon, a match made in hell. So at this point in time, which is 1907, the idea that a healthy person could carry disease was not universally accepted or even understood. And most people had a hard time with the idea that pathogens or germs even cause disease. Um, Robert Koch and germ theory of disease are new things. So keeping that in mind, George Soper turns up at the house of Mary's employer in March 1907. So he turns up on Park Avenue and he knows that his conclusions about Mary Mallon as a healthy carrier 
are not going to be accepted with, without laboratory testing for typhoid. So he turns up without warning. He explains to Mary that she's been spreading disease and death through her food, and he demands samples of her urine, feces, and blood. Yes, you're laughing, and that's because it is a really funny visual, isn't it? Can you imagine if someone turned up and was like, you're killing people. <laughs> Give me Not your poo. Not tactful. No, I mean... honestly. But think of it this way. Like, she's lower class, uneducated, immigrant, single woman, unmarried. She's a vulnerable person, but also someone that a middle to upper class professional, professional male in the first decade of the 20th century would have felt perfectly comfortable walking all over. So obviously she kicks him out of her employer's house, as any sane woman would. So Soper recruits a doctor friend and visits Mary Mellon in her home. So he turns up at her house and once again he demands samples from her and obviously she refuses again and she tells him to get out. <laughs> so the next step for Soper is to take his research to an official at the New York City Health Department. Um, and what happens next is that they send in the city health inspector who is Josephine Baker. What? Uh, yeah. Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker. And let me tell you, this story does not portray her in a favorable light. <laughs> I'm thinking of... She was the first black woman to star in a major motion picture. She was a dancer. She was one known as the oh. Black Venus. It's obviously not the I've same never... person. That's why I was like, wait, it's what? It's obviously not yeah. the same person. Because I had heard of this Josephine Baker before because she was one of those rare female doctors who was championing vaccination programs in New York City. And she was a really big deal in public health, but actually she was, she was sent out to do all the really unpleasant jobs that nobody really wanted to do. But she was quite... She looks very severe. Yes. So they send the city health inspector, Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker, to speak to Mary and once again attempt to obtain samples. Maybe they thought a woman's touch, you know. Uh, she once again says no, and then Dr. Baker calls in the police to take Mary Mallon to Willard Parker Hospital against her will. They turn up at her place of work and, and force her into an ambulance and take her to the infectious diseases ward, where they took the samples that they needed and they found high concentrations of typhoid bacilli in her feces. So health authorities kept her in custody, kept her in isolation on North Brother Island in New York for two years, against her will, until in 1909 she sued the New York City Health Department for her release, and the Supreme Court ruled against her. So they kept her in isolation against her will on North Brother Island for another year. And then in 1910, a new health commissioner was appointed, and he agreed to release Mary Mallon, on the condition that she never work as a cook again. And obviously nobody was offering any alternative career path in a similar income bracket. And they were basically taking away her livelihood and being like, yes, fine, we won't keep you here, but you can never work again. So in 1915, she was found working as a cook again at the Sloan Matern Maternity Hospital. At the hospital. I know. Um, and it had an outbreak of 25 new cases of typhoid <laughs> fever, which is how they found her. 
So she was obviously taken back into custody and isolated on North Brother Island again until her death in 1938. So she'd spent 26 years there, which is just tragic. Okay, I have two thoughts. First, the story makes me think of Henrietta Lacks, that woman who basically her cancer cells were harvested for research and then they were like duplicated and basically all cancer cells that research are done on are her DNA. But like nobody ever told her family. Her family did not receive any benefit from it. They didn't know. They're like not stoked Mm -hmm. about it. And it just seems like a lot of advantage was taken of someone who could be taken advantage of in the interest of public health. Whereas if it was someone who couldn't have been as easily taken advantage of, it would have been a very different story. Yeah. My second thought is, why the hell was the woman not just washing her hands? I mean... Was she sticking her fingers in the poop, then in the soup? Like, how did people keep getting so sick? I don't know. Like, did no one explain to her how it was happening? Like, I, I, what was she doing? I can't comment on that aspect. It might have also been an unrelated typhoid thing. I don't know. I mean. I mean, probably But not. even with the other people, like... Every time I hear this story, and I think there's all these little weird tidbits. Like, I feel like I remember hearing once somewhere that she cooked for the guards that were on mm-hmm. the North Brother Island with her. Just, like, a bunch of weird things where she wouldn't give it up, which kind of indicates that maybe no one really explained. Or she didn't believe them because yeah. it sounded crazy to her. But, like, I just... She definitely never believed them. I can't comment on on that aspect of things, but she definitely never believed that she posed an actual risk and she thought she was being controlled for basically no reason. But yeah, something really disturbing that the investigator said about Mary Mallon, George Soper called her a human culture tube, which kind of sums it up. It really does. Once she was an object of scrutiny by public health officials, she wasn't human anymore. She was just an object to them and a way for them to formulate better responses to these asymptomatic carriers. And yeah, there are a number of interpretations and narratives, and I've kind of just listed them out because they highlight a number of really interesting things. And one of them is that you can have several very different narratives and still have all of them be true. And I think we kind of need to get used to the fact that there is no simple explanation or interpretation for this kind of situation. So yeah, I'm just going to go through them. So narrative number one, Mary Mallon is a hazard to the health of others by virtue of the pathogen in her body, which is being transmitted through her urine and feces. And she transmits that in her capacity as a cook. And ultimately, her apprehension and detention are a triumph for science and for public health. So that would be the perspective of of the scientists. And to them, that was definitely true. And they thought it was absolutely for the best that she was on the island and that she couldn't harm anyone else and that they could run as many tests as they wanted. And while she was on the island, she was regularly giving uh, samples as well. So they had like a continual source of testable material, which is problematic. But according to them, that was great. Narrative number two, the case of Mary Mallon is a worst case scenario for public health officials. Her incarceration, isolation, and observation is a necessary step for developing more effective public health measures against healthy carriers, which is 
also true for public health authorities. And then narrative number three is that the case of Mary Mallon is the illegal detention of a healthy individual without cause, because Mary had never actually been sick with typhoid, according to her. And this is the narrative that her lawyers are putting out there, and that is actually believed in the first trial. Narrative number four is the narrative of a lower-class woman, Irish immigrant, who knowingly spread disease and death among respectable families because she was cooking for, uh, for the wealthy families of New York City. And according to a lot of contemporaries, she got what she deserved. And that was a product of, of prejudice against this lower class single woman who is an immigrant and who is inconvenient and also harmful to the people around her because of her dirty ways or whatever. And then you've got the media representations, which actually change over time. So she's quite sympathetic when she's young in that first Supreme Court hearing. People really get behind her because it's seen as the persecution of this young woman. And then when she later on goes back to cooking in 1915, as an, a slightly older woman, after promising not to, and in a maternity hospital, she becomes reviled and she's portrayed as this bitter old crone who's preying on young mothers and killing babies. Like, it's very much tapping into that witch hunt narrative that a lot of women who don't necessarily fit into the box that society has for them end up falling prey to. But according to Mary Mallon, she's again, she's an Irish immigrant, she has limited career prospects, she gains a reputation as a cook among the well-off families of New York. That's an incredible opportunity for her and definitely not something she ever took for granted. And in her own words to a reporter, she said, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? Sorry, could you read that again with an Irish accent? No, never. So again, there's a grain of truth in all of these narratives and interpretations, and their overlap just illustrates the complexity of attitudes towards health and the prejudices that affect our judgment of people suffering from disease or even just carrying it. So my biggest takeaway from Typhoid Mary it's so easy to forget that the person that you're studying who's suffering from a disease is a human being. And it's so easy to allow prejudice to get in the way of compassion and understanding. And I think it, it touches on the conversation that we've like half had a few times already about the intersection of ethics, human rights, and public health. Like where does the greater good outweigh the individual's mm -hmm. rights? And especially in our modern, like that's why this is so touching, this modern context of like quarantine and isolation. Yeah, and maybe we are a lot more sympathetic towards Mary because of the situation we're in right now where we're actively trying to stop the spread of a virus and we're all feeling a little bit isolated. And I I do think she should have followed our advice. Definitely, yes. <laughs> definitely she should have she shouldn't have been um spitting in the ice cream or whatever she was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not what she was doing. But we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But the thing that really struck me about, about all, of, all of this story, both in the stripped back version of events and in the various interpretations, is that like, this is a clear case of a person who's become a character and a person who's been stripped of their humanity and who's no longer a person but just a patient. And she was, she's really been taken advantage of as a biological specimen. Like She just is a biological specimen to all of these people and I always found it really upsetting. And she's become a meme. Yeah, she's become a meme. 
There's actually an article that came out in 2016, and it retells the story as a battle to the death between Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker and Mary Mallon, and it reduces Mary to a belligerent caricature of herself. Um, and the callousness of that portrayal, which was only written four years ago, really got to me. But there's also a lot of really interesting work uh, coming out of academia and coming out in historical fiction about her. There's this wonderful novel about her called Fever by Mary Beth Keane. So it's historical fiction, but it's an absolute page turner and it tells the story from Mary's perspective. And maybe this book is the main reason I feel so bad for Mary, but the biggest thing for me now is in everything that I study and talk about is that the situation's so much more complicated than we initially think it is. And I think that's the, the thing we really need to keep in mind. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Good, good call. Good historical case study. Thank you. I mean, and is, is it really my podcast or any of my content if I'm not saying I have so many questions coming out of this? Like, it's so much more <laughs> complex. It also, as you were talking, I scribbled this completely illegible note to myself, but it made me think about how when I was researching typhoid, I still end up almost exclusively with articles about typhoid Mary. Those are still the main thing that's talked about, like in terms of super spreaders in the context of COVID, in terms of talking about typhoid and mm -hmm. how it affects the ideas of like isolation and the greater good and all those things you talked about, except millions of people are affected by it now. And we're still talking about Mary Matlin. Mm -hmm. And that's wild. Yeah. That just, yeah, she's still a scapegoat and she, she hasn't been forgiven for being an uneducated Irish immigrant. Nope. <sighs> Poor Mary. Well, I thought that I would take my section in a bit of a different direction than I have been recently. Um, I mean, the, so typhoid is a very real, very communicable, very dangerous disease. And as with diseases we've talked about recently, like cholera or tuberculosis, there are still cases in North America and Europe, but they are much rarer than in developing nations because they're more easily prevented, identified and treated. And because more people in North America and Europe have access to clean water, sanitation, plumbing, and the like than in many other places in the world. So I'm going to touch on a few notable and recent typhoid outbreaks, but I thought that instead I would mostly talk about the ramifications of the disease, besides the obvious one of being ill, which is something that I think we don't often get to. It's estimated that there are between 10 to 20 million cases of typhoid fever and about 5 million of paratyphoid, paratyphoid annually globally and over 100,000 deaths every year. As with many of the diseases we talk about, diagnosing, identifying, or other surveillance measures that allow us to get an accurate sense of the data on the number of people who are ill are really hard in the areas where the disease is the most common. But it's likely based on current research and common sense that those numbers are way higher than we actually think they are. And again, this is why it was so surprising to me to see all this stuff about Mary Mallon and super spreaders. And that's the comparison between typhoid and COVID where it's coming up. Another thing that I came across in my own reading was a lot of comparison between her rather like typhoid Mary in the context of the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, because mm. there was a lot of literature about about that coming out in the early 2000s and in the 1990s. That idea that whenever you have someone who is asymptomatic, at least on the surface, 
um, and who is still spreading a disease around. There's always that, that lingering question, are they doing it on purpose? And can they be trusted to control it on their own? Obviously, I would find that really interesting in the context of like my biological warfare work, but it is a constant fear and it has such an effect on how everyone is treating both Mary Mallon and all of these other examples of asymptomatic carriers. And it just shows, again, this is one of our themes, but it shows how powerful that fear of people being ill is mm -hmm. and how scary it can be. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. So despite the fact that typhoid is found globally, almost all of the deaths are in developing areas. Again, we're not shocked. As of now, the majority of cases are in South Asia. These are WHO classifications. So South Asia has 71% of cases. Southeast Asia has 14%. And Sub-Saharan Africa has 12%. Sorry, South Asia has 71% of cases. That you said the number and I was like, what? Wow. Okay, sorry. Continue. Yeah. No, no. It's a lot. That's fair. Um, it's also worth noting that, uh, like with a lot of other diseases that cause fever and diarrhea, um, children under 15 are m not only more likely to catch typhoid, but younger children are really at risk from dying. Um, and because it's caused by poor sanitation and hygiene, it's most frequent in overcrowded and impoverished communities. So that calls back to what Angel was saying about during the Industrial Revolution, all these people are coming together in these big cities for the first time with poor sanitation. And that's, I mean, that's just still happening the world over. So let's talk about some of the recent outbreaks of the disease. By the way, if anyone is interested in typhoid and wants to look at more information about outbreaks and epidemics, I would recommend the Coalition Against Typhoid. They have a great website. Um, so I referenced that. And in the last few months, in the midst of COVID-19, there have been outbreaks in Haiti, Malawi, a prison in Papua New Guinea, and even a suspected case in Coventry in the UK. There have been a few larger epidemics recently, too. For example, in Harare in Zimbabwe, which started in 2012. But much like epidemics of things like cholera, it's really hard to completely eradicate it. So in theory, that epidemic is still ongoing. And the prison example in Papua New Guinea is also super relevant because it's similar to these other communicable diseases in that those who are at highest risk are usually already extremely vulnerable to it, similar to what we talked about in terms of tuberculosis. And that sort of takes me to my next point. Like, what happens when people get typhoid apart from the vomiting and the nausea and the diarrhea and the potential for death? So let's just preface this conversation by acknowledging that there are some really drastic and impactful health outcomes associated with getting typhoid, and that is obviously a huge part of the health component of this. But I feel like because of the similarity in symptoms with the other diseases we have or haven't quite yet talked about, I want to focus on the economic and social outcomes. So first, there's the challenge that we talked about at the top of getting a diagnosis and treatment at all. So if you're in a remote area, like South parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia, where typhoid is the most common, you might have limited health literacy there might just be a suspicion that if someone's sick, they have the common cold or a more well-known disease. So because treatment can cost money, people will prefer to self-treat at home with aspirin or traditional medicines for whatever disease they might think it is. On top of that, if you take time off of work to go to a clinic, waiting to be seen, getting there, travel, you lose that day's income and it costs you money. So only when the disease, the burden of the disease outweighs the cost of travel, will that actually 
mean that they make a choice to lose income. Yep. So travel itself costs money. The cost of being seen and treated is a burden, not just for the individual, but also for their whole family. So to put it in context, let's say you live in a remote area and you are either subsistence farming, so you're farming just to feed your family, or you're a day laborer, you might lose your job or your livelihood just by taking the time off to, to be sick. And so that's a huge burden. I'm not a health economist, but to sum up all of those costs together, both direct, as in paying for travel, and indirect, as in family's loss of income... An individual and their extended family could lose a huge amount of money just from being sick or taking care of someone who has typhoid. In one study, it showed that Nepalese individuals lost $200 total while sick with typhoid. One member of the family being sick from typhoid. That's a third of the gross domestic annual income of $700. So this family might be making $700 total and by getting sick with typhoid would lose 200 of those dollars for the whole year. Yes. And often that's dealt with by tapping into your support networks or social networks, either to pay for things or to take care of family members. So that costs other people time or money. And that's also a drain. So these economic hits can affect not just your pocket, but your nutritional health, your educational outcomes. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that alongside the obvious negative health outcomes, the lack of prevention or knowledge of preventative measures creates this greater economic burden that keeps those who are living in poverty in poverty, and it even exacerbates it. For people with no savings account, with no safety net, who are living on what they earn day to day, this kind of illness can be totally devastating and derail anything. And if you just look it up, you can see all these horrifying stories of like a little girl who got typhoid, you know, their parents go bankrupt trying to take care of them, might lose their job. Then they either can't pay the school fees anymore or the kid is so sick that they don't get to go back to school. So then they have to start that year of education over again, which is also school fees that cost money. Like there's just so many costs that carry on and have this impact long after their physical health has improved. Let's talk social outcomes too. Typhoid Mary is a great example of that, right? Like she ended up quarantined all alone for 30 years because of her illness and other reasons, like maybe not washing her hands. We don't know. We only just learned how to wash our hands like <laughs> three months ago. <laughs> they didn't have proper antibacterial fair. soap. Like we don't know who struggled. They did not. <laughs> Let's have a bit of compassion for Typhoid Mary. Oh God, I just I called her really that. Bad for her. You called no. her Typhoid Mary. She is a meme. Uh, okay, so a great example of social isolation is Mary Mallon. Yeah. Right? The threat of contagion has always been a reason for stigmatization, as we've mentioned many, many, many times before. And there doesn't seem to actually have been a great deal of research done about the social impact of typhoid specifically. I suspect that it's because the symptoms are so close to those of other diseases and it's so common that they're kind of all lumped together, but also the fact that people typically know so little about it clearly has an impact. So some studies have shown that the lack of health literacy about typhoid means that people won't really know how you could contract, spread, or treat it. So in terms of like prevention of illness, that's really bad. But also I think the assumption there is that it leads to less stigmatization for people who don't actually get diagnosed, because if you're not afraid of contagion, you're not going to stigmatize somebody who's sick with it. 
in terms of long-term health outcomes, there are there are a lot of impacts that typhoid can have on your life and well-being. So obviously the economic effects that follow you for the rest of your life affect your long-term health and well-being, as I talked about. But also if you aren't treated immediately or effectively, you can have a lot of long-term negative health, even if you recover from that bout of typhoid. So you could have internal bleeding, bowel splitting, which is just sounds like ah, the worst, or peritonitis, which is where bacteria from your stomach infect areas of your body that can't defend themselves from that specific bacteria. And that leads to an infection of the blood or sepsis, which is not only really costly to treat, but also really hard to treat. You could also become a chronic carrier like Mary Mallon, who always has the disease in their body, but is not symptomatic. And it also has been shown through research that many people who are diagnosed with typhoid also end up pretty severely depressed. And there are obviously a lot of factors influencing this, of course, many of them very easy to guess and are understandable. I doesn't feel like the research is super conclusive on this. There's some commentary about like gut health leading to depression, some who say that the antibiotics might cause it, some saying that it's just like a social effect of being really sick and the different outcomes. Like there's a lot of different things that could lead into it. You know, I guess in summation, it's obvious that with any disease, there are these outcomes that far surpass your physical well-being. And yeah, it was interesting to look at that in the context of typhoid because you've got this one specific like icon for the disease. And I think a lot of these outcomes in terms of economic and social well-being were reflected at this like huge magnitude in the case of Mary Mallon. Maybe this is mostly because I spend so much of my time by myself now. But I've been reflecting a lot on the usefulness of what I'm studying and what I do, just like disease history in general. But I heard something really encouraging and really interesting from one of the profs in our department recently. And he's been working on, um, on developing policy for the government. And he had some things to say about like the usefulness of history and historical research and historical practice. And the thing he said that really struck me was that making history useful in the real world in the present isn't about coming up with like a universal theory based on historical research but it's more about finding the right comparison and finding the right paradigm for the situation you're dealing with and like when we first started this podcast we were thinking about that comparison with Spanish flu and I think that the only disease we've really looked at so far that comes the closest to being useful as a paradigm for COVID, I think it's typhoid fever. I think it ticks all the boxes for me. You've got True. similar kinds of concerns, mainly the socioeconomic consequences of getting sick, who is able to care for their sick and who isn't, what are the ramifications of that, how do we think of those who are infected what measures do they have to take to keep themselves from transmitting the disease? Like, I think this is probably the closest comparison I've seen so far, and especially looking at typhoid married. Yeah, I think that's interesting because, like, the, those burdens are true of, like, many, if not all, diseases in, in some way. But I think the comparison with the historical factors makes exactly what you've said, like, super, super true, right? Because it has been memefied and made part of popular culture, but also maybe people don't really know that much about it on a scientific level. And, yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's 
a great point. And it's a couple of really good examples of people feeling that they can shame each other or take control of each other's mm. bodies because of an illness. And I find mm. that really interesting to watch um, as just yeah. like a series of interactions. And obviously, Mary Mallon is a really extreme example of that, but we're seeing micro versions of that everywhere right now. Yeah. Totally. And it's become normalized completely. Yeah. And it's interesting because like my, my sort of concluding thought, like the thing that sprung out to me as I was finishing reading about all this stuff was that like outbreaks and epidemics inherently change the world that we live in. We saw it like with exactly what you were talking about at the top with the sanitation movement, cholera, typhoid, like all these diseases led to like developing sewer systems and that got that happened in London and it changed the norms around the world. And we're starting to see exactly like you're saying how COVID is going to change our day to day as well. We don't quite know yet, but we can see that it obviously is. And the issue is that there are these other diseases like typhoid that have become endemic and they're a part of the way many people live because we haven't changed to deal with them. So there is this ongoing epidemic where millions of people are getting ill. That's hap been happening for hundreds of years. And we haven't adjusted our lifestyles to deal with it. So the interesting question will be like, how will or should, should the world change to help us eradicate these diseases that are actually very preventable? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be more sanitation in places where there aren't any? Like there's so much innovation in that sector. But like, are, are there other ways that the world is going to change for that to happen? And... I think the big question is like, how are we going to make it happen in the places where it's needed most? And maybe a positive of COVID would be acknowledging that like something that we're doing isn't working right because so many people are getting ill. So mm -hmm. what do we do differently? Yeah, I mean, COVID is highlighting our complacency and it's really taking that belief that disease is a thing of the past and kicking it right in the teeth. <laughs> I think our illusions have been pretty well dispelled by now, even though the newest trend that I've been noticing is that everyone likes to pretend that the pandemic is over, which is a problem. I was going to say, I not. think it's also shown our inability to pay attention to more than one important thing at the same time. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about narratives just now. Like, it shouldn't be that difficult to hold more than one narrative in your mind and have them coexist, but that doesn't seem to be the culture that we live in, and it's really hard, um, it's really hard to, to hold all of those, um, and maybe that's because our attention span is shortened, or maybe that's just a fact of how we communicate as humans, but we need to do better, and I think it's going to be an exercise, but it's clearly something that we're all of us grappling with and we're all of us becoming more aware of. Yeah. I hope that it becomes something exciting in the world of public health that sort of shocks people into being like, well, clearly mm -hmm. we need innovation and we need change. Like that's something I would like to be a part of. Yeah. That's and like a, a, a more proactive approach than, Oh, a crisis. Let us now respond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And an acknowledgement that in many places that crisis has been ongoing for quite some time and you just yeah. don't know about it. Yeah. Anything happy you would like to share with me today? Oh, yeah. Um, I cooked my first whole duck yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I made Peking duck. I also realized why this duck 
this whole duck was on sale for like $7 and it's because he just only had one leg. I don't know if they took it off to use as like a smaller package or like somebody cut it off accidentally or it was literally a one-legged duck, but he only had (laughs) one leg. Oh, man. I really hope our audience isn't vegetarian because we might just lose some subscribers. <laughs> okay, I can talk instead about how my garden is going great. I would love to hear and about your garden as well. And my beans turned into beans. Your your beans turned into beans. You mean you sprouted them? No. I was ready to like hand pollinate because we're so high up. And so my bean plants were starting to flower, which was very exciting. And I basically went out the next day to look at them because they weren't open enough yet for me to pollinate. And they had just fully turned into beans. Like they are little mini beans now. Like magic. <laughs> they are magic beans. Oh. I'd already I decided. That. Anyway, it was very exciting. So soon I will be able to eat beans and kale from my balcony garden. Wonderful. For the vegans. <sighs> What's your happiness? I am now an expert on live streaming from zoom (laughs) i'm pretty proud of it i keep being approached by various people in my departments um to help them with their with their various live streaming needs (laughs) so this is my new potential career path oh and my um my mint has uh taken very nicely and is starting to go crazy on my windowsill yay which is nice unkillable and most useful yeah, and I'm also uh, regrowing my spring onions, which I, I just found out about that like last week, and that's been pretty cool. Oh, another happy. My sourdough starter's not dead yet, so I'm Yay! happy about that. And that all is flowers good. back in the shops, which is a really big positive. Perfect. You realize now we have to figure out how to end it oh, again. Oh, God, not again. <gasps> I mean, I don't have anything else to say. All right, then that's it, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.